Hi everyone, welcome back to the History in 20 podcast, hope you're all doing well. Um, Another episode today, and today we're discussing the top 10 greatest medieval battles. So, there wasn't particularly a criteria that each battle had to fit for this. I basically thought of 10 of history's most sort of iconic battles, significant battles, important battles good results, whether it's the underdogs, whether it's unexpected, and the mainly battles that changed history for one reason or another. And I'm not necessarily going to talk about the intricacies of the battles, how many people there were, who fought on the left flank, who went through the middle, who was in the vanguard, etc. But it is an overview sort of of these battles, and I'd like to know your opinions. If I've missed out any important ones, or if you think there's one on the list that shouldn't be there, let me know in the comments section below. And let me know why you think that. That just just be interesting for some feedback, to be honest. So basically, the medieval period, which is sometimes referred to as the Middle Ages, is the period of time that spans just over a thousand years, from round about three hundred AD or CE, whatever you prefer to say, to the year fifteen hundred. So during this period. The world was obviously transformed completely, transformed massively, and some of the most famous battles in history took place in this era. And some of them range from, I've, I've tried to get a good range from the beginning to the late medieval period. And like I said, it's not, it's not usually one factor which determines a medieval battle, because obviously the type of warfare evolved over the centuries. So this podcast is simply an attempt to describe, not to describe the warfare, but like I said, to explain the results and what they meant for the medieval world. So without further ado, let's start at number one, the sack of Rome. And oh, that, that's what I'll say actually as well before we get into it properly, is that I'm going chronologically. It's not like what I think is the most important to the least important or whatever. I'm just working my way through chronologically. So, the sack of Rome on the 24th of August, 410. So I'm starting here because a common misconception in the Middle Ages or the medieval period is that it was all knights in shining armour, chivalry, ladies in waiting, etc. Part of it was, which is the period known as the High Middle Ages, which spans from around 1000 to 1300. But the reality is is that the early medieval period set the precedent for the High Middle Ages, and one of the most famous medieval battles is the Sack of Rome by Alaric and his Visigoths in 410. So, for some time the Roman Empire had been heading towards collapse, and events during the 3rd century crisis, which I mentioned in one of my previous videos, which I'll link above and in the comments section below. Um, they'd been partially rectified by the Emperor Diocletian in 284, but they still stung the Roman population almost 200 years later, some of these economic reforms and social reforms. Um, And a disgruntled populace was obviously there for the taking when heavily armed enemies were standing outside the very walls of Rome. But this wasn't the first time that barbarians had ransacked Rome in the early medieval period. It just happened to be third time lucky when Alaric arrived. So after besieging the city for a number of weeks, the Visigoths devised a plan whereby they would offer the Romans in the city some of their slaves out of a mark of respect for withstanding a siege for so long. And obviously the Romans fell for this, and they opened up the Salarian Gate and the Visigoths poured into the city. And Alaric and his Visigoths besieged Rome for three whole days and they murdered aristocrats, they burned buildings, they looted anything they could get their hands on, and then they left. So in the space of three days, the ancient city of Rome, which hadn't been sacked for over 800 years, had been completely ruined, like I mentioned, within the space of three days. And to make matters worse, the Romans viewed the Visigoths as barbarians or savages and themselves as superior, which made it even more humiliating, obviously. 
So the reason that this battle makes the list is because of the impact that it had not just on Rome itself, but on Roman thinking. They had been completely obliterated by an army of savages. They realised that they were not immortal and that their city was in fact penetrable. And indeed the future of the Western Roman Empire would only last for just over another century and a half, whereas the Visigoths, obviously, they'd played their part in ensuring its quick demise after the sack of Rome, which is why that particular sack of Rome makes this list. Now we're fast forwarding about 600 years now for our second battle, which is one that I'm sure all my British listeners will have will have heard of in the form probably of an advert on TV about 10 years ago for Hastings Insurance. And it is in fact the Battle of Hastings which took place on the 14th of October 1066. Now this next battle is, as I mentioned, one that almost everybody has heard of, regardless so it marked the end of Saxon rule in England and the beginning of Norman rule and the battle was so significant because the royal family in England can actually be traced back just about over a thousand years to the Battle of Hastings where we've had an almost uninterrupted uh, lineage from 1066 where the Norman dynasty were the victors and their descendants were to rule England in one form or another for over 1,000 years. So the battle itself actually took place on the south coast of England, southeast coast, in a town called Hastings, obviously. <laughs> and the English king at the time, who was Harold II, had actually just finished fighting a Viking king, Harold Hardrada, up in York. And he obviously heard of this invasion where the French leader, a guy called William of Normandy, was coming over. So he marched down his troops down the country at an extraordinary speed to meet with William's forces. And Harold's troops... At this point, obviously, we're exhausted from the demanding march after days of fighting over 300 miles away, and obviously, they were already disadvantaged because of this. Now, William's forces obviously took advantage of this, won a decisive victory, with Harold II being allegedly killed by an arrow that was shot into his eye, which is an image which is depicted in the famous Bio Tapestry. And William of Normandy took over England, and he was then known as crowned as William I of England on Christmas Day, 1066. And today he's usually better known by his eponym, William the Conqueror. So that was, again, obviously a significant battle to put on this list because it changed British history forever. So, number three, we go forward about 30 years from that one, and we go to the Battle of Antioch on the 28th of June, 1098. Now, Antioch was part of the conflict known as the First Crusade uh, over in the Middle East, where the Christian European forces rallied together after Pope Urban II's famous council at Clermont in 1095 to aid their Byzantine brothers in the East against Muslim forces. So after winning victories at Nicaea and Dorylaeum, the Crusaders reached Antioch, and their goal was to take Jerusalem, which they were eventually successful in to an extent, but obviously more about that if I do an episode on the Crusades. Um, so why is the victory at Antioch then being included in this list rather than the victory at Jerusalem? So for a start, Antioch was where it was situated geographically was key for the Crusaders. It's located in present-day Antakya, which is where it takes its name from Antioch, uh, in Turkey, present-day Turkey, east of the Orontes River, which meant that supplies could be shipped from Europe, supplies being food, drink, water, troops, whatever, and ship through the river systems of Greece and Turkey to reach the Crusaders. So in addition to this, the Battle of Antioch was actually the culmination of what became known as the Siege of Antioch, which was an eight-month-long siege of the city, which lasted from October 1097 to June 1098. 
So unlike an attacking battle, this one's actually defending. So the Christians had to defend Antioch or all their attempts to reach Jerusalem over the previous three years, the Holy Land, would have been in vain. So eventually six divisions of the starving Christian troops emerged from the gates of Antioch and the Muslim leader, a guy called Kaboa, ordered an immediate attack. But Bohemond of Taranto, who was one of the Crusader leaders, he'd planned for this and a seventh division of Christian soldiers managed to hold off the attack. So the Christians allegedly saw visions of St. George which boosted their morale and eventually the Muslim troops retreated and they scattered in numerous different directions and the Crusaders kept hold of their precious city of Antioch which was a key part in the history of the Crusades. So now we go forward about 90 years from there in another battle of the Crusades but this isn't in the first Crusade and it's not a Christian victory it's in the second Crusade and it's called the Battle of Hattin and it took place on the 4th of July 1187. So why does this make this list? Well, it wasn't a victory in the fear of the Crusaders, but the Second Crusade was a disaster for the Crusaders themselves, but was a victory for the Muslim troops. So the troops were faced with one of the Islamic world's most formidable military leaders, a guy called Al-Nasir Salah al-Din Yusuf ibn Ayyub, who is better known as Saladin. Now, Saladin's Muslim troops had positioned themselves very carefully and in an arc shape around Hattin, which you'll see on the map on your screen now, which cut off the water supply from Lake Tiberius, which is today known as the Sea of Galilee. This not only ensured that Muslim troops could stay hydrated for as long as necessary, but it dehydrated the Crusaders because they didn't have a water supply. Obviously, in the baking, like, Israeli Mediterranean summer, that's not what you want. So... The Muslims surrounded the Crusaders overnight and they kept them awake by chanting prayers and beating drums and they also set fire to the dry grass around the Crusader camp which made the throats even drier. So on the morning of July the 4th the Crusader army were blinded by smoke from the Muslim fires which gave the Muslim army a perfect excuse to open fire with their archers under cover. So they were thoroughly demoralised and disorientated. The Crusaders just broke formation and made for the springs of Hattin, but due to dehydration and their injuries, the vast majority of them were simply picked off by Muslim soldiers and killed. So Saladin had taken back Muslim lands and effectively ended the Second Crusade, which is why this goes down as one of history's greatest medieval battles. Number five on our list is just a few years after this in 1214. It's called the Battle of Bouvines on the 27th of July 1214. I've actually discussed this in the Plantagenets mini-series. Uh, I think it was in episode two with King John. So again, I'll, uh, I'll link that above and you can check that out if you'd like as well. So, in 1212, King Philip II of France had planned to cross the English Channel and take England for himself, and this had scared King John enough to realise how vulnerable he was with less than 30 miles of water between the two feuding kingdoms. So, as a response, John made peace with the church. He'd been effectively placed under suspension by Pope Innocent III in 1208 because of his constant arguing with the church, but this came at a cost because he promised to surrender his kingdom to the Pope as well as pay an annual sum of a thousand marks to Innocent and his successors in perpetuity. Now, a 14th century chronicler, a guy called Henry Knighton, actually noted that John had turned himself from a free man into a slave because of this. So as a result, John had no option but to go to war, and his forces, along with those of the Holy Roman Empire under Otto IV, met at Bouvines in France. And the Allied army of 9,000 outnumbered Philip's army by 2,000, because he had 7,000 troops. So John was actually at an advantage. Nevertheless, though, the French army destroyed John's forces and completely destroyed any hopes of John regaining his territory back. 
And this is a hugely significant medieval battle for a number of reasons. So firstly, it signified the early collapse of the Plantagenet Empire. So all of the territory that had been won under John's father, Henry II, was now lost. Secondly, it ended the Anglo-French War of 1213-14. to And thirdly, it changed the course of English history forever. Realising how weakened he actually was, John's barons forced him into signing the Magna Carta, which is a legal document which still holds precedent in English law over 800 years later. You can check out more about the Magna Carta in my video about King John, which as I mentioned, it'll be linked above or it'll be linked in the comments below. So, moving on to number six. The Battle of Bannockburn on the 24th of June 1314, so we're 100 years ahead of Bouvin now, still under Plantagenet rule. So we're now in the reign of King John's great-grandson, Edward II, and it's another one of history's greatest battles, the Battle of Bannockburn. So Bannockburn was part of the Anglo-Scottish Wars, which stretched from the late 13th to mid-14th centuries, and again I've mentioned this in the Plantagenet's mini-series, go and check that out if you like. So, the Scottish King, Robert I, better known as Robert the Bruce, had reclaimed both Roxburgh Castle and Edinburgh Castle in early 1314, which essentially invited the English to war in Scotland. So the resulting confrontation was the Battle of Bannockburn, which was one of the most catastrophic defeats in English history. It was a disaster before the battle had even begun, because the, the English Earls of Gloucester and Hereford argued over who should lead the vanguard, and Edward II actually accused the Earl of Gloucester of being a coward, which isn't ideal in the hours before a battle. So enraged by the King's comments, Gloucester charged forward to meet the Scottish forces and he was killed. The Scottish army then forced the English back into the Bannockburn stream and trapped them in between the riverbanks and the English forces just lost formation and broke ranks completely. And to rub salt into the English wounds, it's estimated that Bruce's Scottish forces only numbered 6,000 compared to Edward's army of 20,000. So such a huge military disaster tainted Edward II's reputation as King particularly given that his father, Edward I, known as the Hammer of the Scots, was so successful against the Scots. And to make matters worse posthumously for Edward II, his son Edward III was also successful against the Scots on numerous occasions, which just tarnishes Edward II's reputation even more. And funnily enough, it's Edward III who we turn to next, but we're not turning to one of his Anglo-Scottish victories, we're turning to the Battle of Sluys in, or Sluys in the 24th of June, 1340. So exactly 26 years after Bannockburn, but we're now in France. So, so far, all the battles that we've discussed have been land-based, but this is different, it's a naval battle. And it's part of the Hundred Years' War, which lasted from 1337 to 1453. And it was one of Edward III's most notable victories and a huge victory for England. So with King Philip VI of France having his attention set on the North Sea in early 1340, Edward III knew he had to defend his kingdom. However, the odds were instead in Philip's favour because by June he'd amassed a fleet of 213 ships, while Edward mustered about 150. So Edward's English forces met Philip's French forces at the Bay of Sluys in Flanders and the French fleet was defending the bay while Edward's advanced towards them. But Philip had made sure that his ships were chained, to get chained together so as to make an impenetrable barrier against the English forces. However, after about four hours of combat, the English ships broke through the first line of the French defence and then the French capitulated and Edward captured all but 23 of the French ships and estimates of between 16,000 and 18,000 French seamen and soldiers had lost their lives, including all of Philip's admirals. So it was a huge loss for France and it turned the Hundred Years' War in the favour of England. So that's again why this belongs on this list.
So we move to number eight. We're going a few years ahead, still in the Hundred Years' War, though, to a battle that most English people will have heard of, and probably most French people as well, and that is, of course, the Battle of Agincourt on the 25th of October, 1415. So, under the Lancastrian king, Henry V, English forces emerged victorious in not just one of the greatest medieval battles of all time, but one of history's greatest underdog stories. So, after a few decades of relative peace in the Hundred Years' War, because of the Black Death um, and economic crises since then, England and France had resumed negotiations, but they soon turned sour. So, as a result, England began to rearm and re-prepare for war, this time under Edward III's great-grandson, Henry V. So in the ensuing campaigns, English numbers had been decimated by disease and they tried to withdraw from English-held Calais, but they found their route blocked by French forces at Agincourt. And despite their severe numerical disadvantage, which was around 7,000 England so English soldiers to about 25,000 French soldiers, Henry V had no other option but to fight his way out. So the French forces were led by a nobleman called Charles d'Albret, who was because King Charles VI of France was severely mentally ill and incapable of leading an army, while Henry V commanded the English army. So the English longbows, which had shown such prominence in the early battles of the Hundred Years' War under Edward III in conflicts such as Cressy and Poitiers, once again proved their superiority, especially in the boggy, marshy ground of Agincourt. The weather conditions were terrible, we're told. I wasn't there, obviously. Now, the English forces routed the French and they lost about 600 men compared to the 6,000 French who were killed and 2,000 who were captured and mostly executed. And the reason that Agincourt belongs on this list is because it turned the Hundred Years' War back in the favour of England and it also proved that the longbow, despite being used for almost a century, was still the superior weapon of the day. And it also cemented King Henry V's reputation as one of England's greatest ever kings. If you look at the greatest kings of England list, Henry V is always on there. He's up there with Edward I, Edward III and Henry VIII. And it's largely because of Agincourt, so that's why that belongs on this list. Now, number nine, we're still in the 15th century, we go to 1453, which is a date that might ring true to some people, and we go to the fall of Constantinople on the 29th of May, 1453. So it's the tragic story of the fall of Constantinople, I suppose it's tragic whichever side you're on really, but um, the fall of Constantinople which signalled the final collapse of the Roman Empire. And it's actually sometimes known as the conquest of Istanbul in Turkish, which is you'll understand in a minute when I explain that. But it's the culmination of a 53-day siege of the city, which at the time was the capital of the Byzantine Empire. So the Byzantine Empire had been formed under the Roman Emperor Constantine I in 330 and established as a state in its own right in 395. And it had survived as the Eastern Roman Empire after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 6th century. So due to centuries of conflict between the Eastern and Western Orthodox churches, the Byzantines were effectively left on their own to defend their city after they'd predicted there was going to be an assault from the Ottomans. Now unfortunately this story isn't one of underdogs. The Ottoman army, which was commanded by the 21-year-old Sultan Mehmed II, who became known as Mehmed the Conqueror, numbered almost 200,000, while the Byzantines had just over 10,000. So it was always going to be an Ottoman victory. I'm not going to bore you with the details of the siege, because pretty sure you can guess the Ottomans absolutely obliterated them. So the Byzantines were led by Emperor Constantine XI, Palaiologus, Palaiologus, something like that. I don't know. You tell me if I've pronounced that wrong, so I'm pretty sure I have. 
And they, as I mentioned, they were completely destroyed by Mehmed's forces. And Mehmed made Constantinople a new capital of the Ottoman Empire. It was renamed Istanbul after his victory. And it not only ended the Byzantine Empire, but the Roman Empire, which could be traced back to 27 BCE, which ended a 1,500-year rule of the Roman Empire. Now, this is one of the most significant battles of all time, not just a key medieval battle, because it enabled the Ottomans to pursue further into Europe, and they gained much more territory in the Balkans. And they still exhibit a Muslim influence to this day, particularly in countries such as Albania and Bosnia and Herzegovina, which have uh, high Muslim populations. And furthermore, it led to a change in warfare. So sieges are often held up against turrets, which were firing huge boulders at the thick uh, castle walls. But with the onset of gunpowder, the castles crumbled and changed military tactics forever. And finally, the fall of Constantinople is such a key event in medieval history that it's sometimes referred to as the end of the Middle Ages and the ushering in of the early modern period. However, some historians, including myself, disagree, and instead to prefer to turn to 1492, where the final battle on this list ends. So, number 10. The fall of Granada, 2nd of January 1492. So the whole year 1492 is often used to describe the change from the medieval period to the early modern period. That's largely due to Christopher Columbus's, in inverted commas, discovery of the Americas. However, I think the fall of Granada is just as important in European history. So Muslims had ruled the Iberian Peninsula in various areas since the conquest of Al-Andalus in 711. So thus the fall of Granada, which was... Uh, the Muslims' last stand in Iberia ended 781 years of Muslim rule in the peninsula, which was never to return again in any great form like it had done then. Now, the Granada War had been going on since 1482 with various conflicts and battles, but they all eventually culminated in the fall of Granada in 1492. So the Granadan defenders were also plagued with internal conflicts and disagreements, while the Christian forces remained unified and united under the monarchs Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella I of Castile, who are two monarchs who are some of Spanish history's most revered and respected rulers of all time. So by unifying their kingdoms, they defeated their mutual enemy. Now, eventually, after realising that there was nowhere else to turn to, Mohammed XII, who was also known as Boabdil, surrendered the magnificent Alhambra Palace to the Christian forces who moved in. And allegedly, Boabdil's mother was so disappointed when he wept as he handed the keys to the Alhambra over that she said, You do well, my son, to cry like a woman for what you couldn't defend like a man. Now that's a pretty damning quote in itself and shows again the values of the uh, 15th century are quite different to ours today, which might not come as a surprise. But anyway, however, just because Granada was now in Christian hands, it didn't end all conflict. If anything, it prevented the religious coexistence which had survived for centuries. So all of the Jews were forced to convert to Christianity or face exile, and the same applied for the Muslims. But even those who did convert were known as crypto-Jews or crypto-Muslims. And they weren't respected as, enough, respected as much as the traditional Christians that had come from Spain and the Iberian Peninsula. And this is another thing which led to the Spanish Inquisition, which I'm not going to discuss today. But that's if you want to hear about that, let me know in the comments below and I'll see what I can do. So even so, the fall of Granada is definitely one of history's most significant medieval battles because of how it affected the Iberian Peninsula to this day. So evidence of the Muslim influence is still very much present in the wonderful Alhambra Palace today with the decor and the traditional Muslim um, architecture. And there you can still see that in there today. 
Um, but it's also clear in Spain's highly Catholic population today that Islam has well and truly left the Iberian Peninsula forever, I think, but history will only tell. And that is it for this episode, so I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know if there's anything I missed out. Uh, like, comment and subscribe. If you could subscribe, if you could share this, this would be excellent. And I will see you at the next video. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.